obviously, you can never gain a right standing with God by your own efforts. No one but Jesus Christ has ever lived that kind of life. But the good news is, the gospel tells us there's another way. The other way is for God to do something amazing in His grace. And that is, instead of crediting your sin to you, He credits it to Christ. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series titled The Keynote of Romans, chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. On October 31, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Castle Church in Wittenberg. Luther later wrote of the doctrine of justification that he first saw in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, remarking, It is the chief article from which all our other doctrines have flowed. If the article of justification is lost, all Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. It is the article by which the church stands or falls. Well, friend, as you'll hear today, if this doctrine is not held to and believed, then the church ceases to be the church. It becomes something else. Let's join Tom Pennington now to discover more from God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, as we continue our study of what is a monumental passage in Paul's letter to the Roman churches. Five years after Martin Luther became a monk, and two years after he began to teach the Bible at the University of Wittenberg, Luther was sent on church business to Rome. It was the year 1510. It was in Rome on that visit that a famous incident occurred, which is recorded for us only by Luther's son. In the church of St. John Lateran in Rome, there is a set of stone stairs. There was in Luther's day, it remains there to this day. The Roman Catholic Church claims that They were the original stairs that led up to Pilate's house in Jerusalem. And through both a misunderstanding of history as well as the biblical record, they mistakenly teach that they were the very steps that our Lord himself ascended just before his crucifixion, during his trial. It had already become a tradition in Luther's day because of how those steps were were thought to be and how they'd been venerated, it had become a tradition, and by the way, this tradition continues to this day, I have seen it with my own eyes, for pilgrims to climb those stairs slowly on their knees, pausing at each step to pray. There are also bloodstains on a couple of the stairs, and supposedly those are the blood of Christ. So worshipers will stop and kiss those steps today through the plexiglass that covers them, and then they would pause and pray for a long time before continuing on up the steps. Now, why would they do this? Well, in Luther's day and ours, the church promises, the Roman Catholic Church promises, that for all who will climb the stairs in this way, 
God will shorten their time in purgatory. So Luther, as the pilgrims of his day did, and as it continues to this day, visited the church in Saint, of St. Saint John Lateran in Rome, and he began the journey up those steps on his knees. As he ascended the stairs, the words that he had been studying in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, overpowered him. His son records that as he mounted each step, as he continued up the, the steps, the words seemed to grow louder in his mind with every step. The one who is righteous by faith shall live. The one who is righteous by faith shall live. Eventually, the words became so loud and the truth that they contained penetrated his soul to such an extent that he realized how much those words stood in antithesis to the very thing he was doing. And he stood up from the, on those stairs and he shook himself from the superstition in which he'd been engaged and he walked down those stairs never to do it again. It was really at that moment the Protestant Reformation was born even though it wasn't until seven years later, in the, on October 31st, 1517, that Luther would nail his 95 theses to the castle church in Wittenberg. Luther later wrote of the doctrine of justification that he first saw in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, in this way. He said, it is the chief article from which all our other doctrines have flowed. If the article of justification is lost... All Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. It alone begets or gives birth to, nourishes, builds, preserves, defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. It is the article by which the church stands or falls. What Luther meant by that was if this doctrine is not held to and believed, then the church ceases to be the church. It becomes something else. Let's read together these magnificent verses in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now these two verses, as we've noted, establish the theme of Paul's letter to the Romans. It's the gospel of God, as he mentions in verse 1. It is the gospel that Paul preached and of that gospel, Paul says in verse 16, I am not ashamed. And in these two verses, he explains why. As he explains his lack of shame, he also teaches us the reasons that you and I should never be ashamed of the gospel. So far, we've looked at five of the reasons that he gives in these verses. Number one, because it is the power of God. It is God's power. When the gospel, this simple message is preached, God is exhibiting his power in this message to accomplish his purpose. Secondly, it produces salvation. 
Specifically, it is God's power to accomplish the spiritual rescue of individuals. God is in the gospel calling sinners to himself to be spiritually saved, to be reconciled to him. Number three, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because it requires no human work or merit. Notice in verse 16, he says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In Paul's mind, believing was the exact opposite of working. And so he is saying by, it is the salvation, it accomplishes the salvation of those who believe. He means by that, you don't have to extend any human effort. You don't have to have any human merit to gain what the gospel promises. Number four, it is God's universal message for every person. Notice how verse 16 ends. The gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Greek here stands in antithesis to everything Jewish, so it means Gentiles. In other words, for every person on the planet. The gospel is appropriate for every person who has ever or will ever live. And last time we began looking at the fifth reason that Paul was not ashamed, that we should not be ashamed of the gospel, because it promises righteousness. It promises righteousness. Now, as we began to consider this point last time, we discovered that God's standard for human thinking and speaking and behaving is his own holy character. He demands of us nothing less than absolute perfection. Listen carefully. The only way anyone will ever gain heaven or enter into God's presence by his own righteousness will be through absolutely perfect obedience. God doesn't grade on a curve. You say, well, what's the, what's the example of that biblically? Where would you go to prove that? Well, there are a lot of places. Let me just give you one example. James chapter 2, verse 10. James writes, whoever keeps the whole law. Here he says, imagine for a moment that someone could keep the entirety of God's law, all of those commands, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one. He says, imagine that somebody really could keep every command God had given us, but at some point in their life, they failed in just one way. By the way, you know what that one way is in the context of James 2? Prejudice. All you have to do is just show prejudice one time in your heart, once in your life. And what happens? He says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become what? Guilty of all. You see, the law isn't something you can take piecemeal. Picture the law as a link chain. Take out one link and it's worthless. Because the law commands perfect love for God and perfect love for others. And if you ever fail to love God or others perfectly, even one time, you have failed in the essence of the law. So clearly there is no one righteous by that standard. That's why Paul will conclude in chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. Nobody meets that standard. 
that's where the good news comes in. The good news picks up where the bad news leaves off because the gospel promises us the very righteousness that God demands and that we so desperately lack. Look at verse 17. In it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel promises righteousness. Now, that immediately raises a crucial question, and that question is, what is exactly the righteousness that the gospel promises? Well, there are only two answers to that question. Let me start with the wrong answer. The wrong answer, the righteousness the gospel does does not promise, is what we could call inherent or infused righteousness. Let me give you a, a series of descriptions that the New Testament gives of this kind of righteousness. We'll look at some of these verses in just a few minutes. It describes it as our own righteousness. That is a righteousness that is of our own making, that we have accomplished, that is inherent in us. It's called a righteousness based on the law. In other words, a righteousness based on keeping or obeying God's law. But even without reference to God's law specifically, Titus refers to it, this wrong answer, this wrong kind of righteousness, as deeds that we have done in righteousness. You see that God never declares anyone righteous based on his own righteousness, based on something he has accomplished, something he has done. And yet, this wrong answer is always man's answer. Now, sometimes this wrong answer is carefully wrapped in theological language to make it sound more palatable, more believable. For example, the Roman Catholic Church teaches in its doctrines in the Council of Trent, quote, the righteousness received in justification is preserved and also increased before God through good works, end quote. Sometimes this, this wrong answer is clouded in the theological language of what is called the new perspective on Paul. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's a new theological idea that's sweeping across some segments of Christianity. Its major proponent, its great champion, is a British scholar and theologian by the name of N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright argues that when believers are justified, and he argues that will only happen at the final judgment, that when believers are justified, and by that he means when they are declared to be in, to be God's people, he says, quote, the righteousness they have will not be God's own righteousness. Instead, he says, quote, the final justification of God's people will be on the basis of their whole life, end quote. In other words, God will justify that person. He'll declare their end based on how they lived their life. It may be by faith to some extent, it may be by grace to some extent, but ultimately it will be upon, their justification will be based upon their own life lived, their efforts, their work. 
So sometimes this wrong answer comes in the language of theology. But frankly, most of the time, this wrong answer is just how normal people think about God and about themselves. It's the common view of most people. According to a 2004 survey by George Barna, 54% of American adults believe that if a person is generally good or does enough good things for others during their life, they will earn by those good works a place in heaven. I think that number is probably low, but at least 54% of Americans believe that. Ask the average person on the street on what basis he hopes to get to heaven. And by the way, most Americans hope to get to heaven. And you will hear something like this. Well, you know, yes, of course, I sin. I understand I sin. But I'm not really a bad person. I think when God evaluates my life, the good that I have done will certainly outweigh the bad. Understand, that's the wrong answer. This kind of righteousness is not the kind that makes us right with God, that gives us a right standing before him. There is in God's standard none righteous. This is our own righteousness, and it will never meet God's holy standard. Let that sink into your head. God doesn't grade on a a curve. He's not going to accept your less than righteousness as righteous. So that brings us to Paul's answer. What is the righteousness that the gospel promises? Paul's answer is that it is an imputed righteousness. An imputed righteousness. I'll explain that word in just a few minutes. You see, in contrast to the wrong answer, Paul deliberately makes a contrast between the righteousness based on all human effort with God's righteousness that's received by faith. He contrasts the two. He does this often. I wish I had time. I have several references in my notes. Let me, in the interest of time, just show you one in Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 9. The contrast will be very clear for you. Romans chapter 9, Paul is arguing about why it is the Jews didn't embrace their Messiah, why they didn't believe the gospel. Verse 30. Romans 9.30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, that is, pursue on their own, attained righteousness, and they gained the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, that is, a right standing before God based on their keeping of God's law, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. Notice chapter 10, verse 3. Here again, you see the contrast between the wrong answer, one's own righteousness, with the right answer, God's righteousness. Verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, in verses 5 through 10, Paul continues to contrast these two kinds of righteousness. 
Notice the first kind in verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices, here's the first kind, the righteousness which is based on law, that is the righteousness which comes from his keeping the law, from his own efforts, shall live by that righteousness. In other words, he's got to continually live under that and keep it up. It's got to be perfect. That's one kind. The other kind of righteousness in verse 6, the righteousness based on faith. It doesn't say you've got to do something great. You don't have to ascend into heaven. You don't have to descend into the abyss. You don't have to do something magnificent, sort of journey around the universe. Instead, verse 8, it's something that's near you, not something great you have to do. It's something in your mouth and in your heart. This is the message of faith which we are preaching, that if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Do you see the contrast? There's the righteousness based on what I do, and there's the righteousness which comes from God I receive by faith. Let me show you one other text outside of Romans. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, you have here Paul's spiritual autobiography. And notice what he says at the end of verse 8. He says, I wanted to gain Christ, gain the Messiah. Verse 9, what I mean by that is I want to be found in him. Now watch the contrast again between these two kinds of righteousness. Not having, this is not what I wanted, Paul said, a righteousness of my own. A righteousness that I derive from law-keeping. Here's the other righteousness. But rather, I want that righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So understand then that the righteousness the gospel promises is not my own righteousness, achieved by my own efforts, by my own obedience, by my own good works, but rather It is the gift of God's righteousness received by faith. Or in the words of the Reformers, it is an alien righteousness. What they meant by that is it is a stranger to me. It's not my own. It's outside of me. It's it's someone else's righteousness credited to my account as if I had owned it personally, as if I had done righteousness. It's the gift of righteousness God gives the believing sinner So understand then, the righteousness the gospel promises is not a moral quality inherent in me. The righteousness the gospel promises is a right standing, a legal status before God. So the gospel then is at its heart what theologians call justification. Now, if I ask you to come up here this morning and stand here and I'll hand you a mic and you define justification, what would you say? Ask most Christians to define justification and you're going to get an answer something like this. Well, it means just as if I'd never sinned. Well, that's kind of a cute saying and it goes in the right direction. But justification is so much more than that. 
Let's look a little more carefully at this great truth. Let's take it apart. We're going to come back to it in chapter 3, verse 21 and following, where Paul explains it thoroughly. But in honesty, it's going to be a few months before we get there. So let's look at it. What is justification? Justification, in justification, God makes two accounting transactions and one legal decision. Two accounting transactions, one legal decision. Let's look at them. First of all, accounting transaction number one. God does not credit our sin to us, but to Christ. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his current series, The Keynote of Romans. Tom will bring you part six next time, and do join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.